I'm Robin Burgess. I'm a professor of economics here and also co-director of the International Growth Center, which is uh, co-hosted between LSE and Oxford, but has a set of offices across the developing world and is uh, funded by uh, DFID. So what I'd like to do today is just to sort of um, introduce a lineup for what is essentially the kickoff event for a, a longer event, which is Growth Week, which extends all the way to Friday. Um, by just saying a few words about um, two things, what, what the IGC is trying to achieve, and I'll be very brief there because we have some, uh, we're going to have some wor words from our acting executive director then, and then I'll introduce the lineup and, uh, for the event. So, so the basic, you know, the idea of Growth Week and of the IGC as a whole is basically to sort of bring research and policy together. And that's the sort of key defining characteristic of the, the organization. So it's very much an international organization. And what we're going to be trying to do this week is, in, in effect, try to set an agenda in some of the important areas of policy, uh, growth policy, that confront developing uh, nations. And in doing that sort of policy... Uh, input, we're sort of informed by what are perceived as the key challenges for growth in the world's poorest nations. So it's very much about helping developing countries to find their own solutions to the growth challenges they face. One of the characteristics of the organization is we're trying to sort of bridge frontier uh, research on growth in to, to meet those growth uh, policy challenges. And that's sort of very much what we're trying to do this week. Um, but in effect, what we're, what we're also trying to ensure is that the, the set of issues that we're addressing are those which are perceived as, the, as, as the, the key challenges in the developing countries. So this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to have three welcoming addresses um, from some of the key players uh, in and around the IGC. We're going to kick off with uh, Sarah Worthington, who is Pro-Director for Research and External uh, relations at the LSE and has been a great champion of the IGC through all the setup phase and beyond, uh, who's going to welcome you on behalf of the LSE. And then Mark Henstrich, who is the acting executive director of the IGC, will say a few things about the IGC uh, to give you a, a fuller sense of what we're about. And finally, Alan Winters, who's representing DFID at this event, uh, who DFID both sort of initiated the project and funds it, uh, we'll say a few words on behalf of DFID. And then following those three introductory uh, remarks, we'll turn to the sort of, I guess, the main event, which is uh, going to be a lecture by Paul Collier on natural resource management. So Paul is also co-director of the International Growth Centre as well as being a professor of economics at Oxford. And in many ways, Paul has been responsible for putting the study of... Uh, African economies on the research map over the last couple of decades. So he set up the Center for the Study of African Economies and more recently has been working uh, very much through the IGC in pushing that agenda forward. So he'll give a public lecture on his recent work on natural resource management, which is really an issue that confronts many of the countries who are working in how do you manage uh, the natural resource base. And then as a respondent, we have Ernest Ayiti, who is a director of the Institute for Statistical Social Economic Research at the University of Ghana, and is also our country director, the IGC country director for Ghana, and is about to go on also to head up the Africa Growth Program at Brookings Institute. 
So Ernest will both sort of respond to what Paul is presenting, but also will provide some uh, insights on the challenges that countries like Ghana face. Ghana, for example, has recently discovered oil, and they're starting to think through, well, how can we uh, make uh, best use of this new resource? So basically, I'm just going to sit down now and uh, act as timekeeper, because we have a very full schedule, and then uh, we, we will try to do things so we at least have some time for questions right at the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robin. Uh, as Robin said, I'm uh, Sarah Worthington, pro-director here at the LSE, and he's given me very strict guidelines about what I have to do. Uh, it's my job to um, welcome you all here on behalf of the school, uh, because the director, Howard Davies, is otherwise engaged. But that's quite fortunate for me, because I have been, as Robin said, a very passionate advocate of um, the International Growth Centre and the very particular and special idea that is behind it. Now, I don't want to let my passion run riot, because uh, I'm a lawyer, not an economist, and uh, not a policy person either. And it gives me sort of great delight to try as a lawyer to be even more concise than an economist. But the special thing about the International Growth Centre is that we're trying to put together really the world's best researchers in development economics. So we've got the LSE and Oxford partnering together, but drawing on other academics around the world to produce the absolute best research we can on the issues that face developing economies around the world. And you might say, well, that's just what universities do, don't they? They do good research. And I suppose, if I'm honest, that isn't the real challenge for the LSE. We're reasonably confident that we can do that. And no doubt Oxford is equally confident that it has the people and the resources to produce excellent research. But what the LSE also prides itself on is real engagement with non-academic constituencies. And the International Growth Centre pulls together that idea of maximising that engagement in a very particular, formal, special way. Because this project will really only work if that top-class research is then translated into real policy activity and change on the ground in the countries with which the research is involved. And that's the genius, I think, and the innovation behind this International Growth Centre because it starts from the beginning on the premise not just that this good research will be done and then we'll tout it around the place and see if anyone will pick it up and do something with it. It starts from the presumption that Difford is working with these university institutions and the researchers and with the countries that um, are in need of uh, better ways of managing their economies and that the parties will work together to produce a better outcome. Bit scary, uh, but if it works, won't it be wonderful? So it really does give me great pleasure to on behalf of the school, welcome you all here and open this uh, International Growth Week, which aims to pull together some very senior academic researchers from all over the place, some very senior policy makers, again, from all over the place, 
uh, and obviously the key leaders of the, uh, both of the International Growth Center, both from here and from Oxford, leaders from DFID, and leaders from uh, other major organizations that are supporting us. So without more ado, welcome, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Mark Henstridge. I've recently joined the IGC and am acting as executive director. And it is my great privilege to welcome you all to this event and to Growth Week on behalf of the International Growth Centre. It's a privilege for at least two reasons. First, because the people gathering here for Growth Week constitute a phenomenally powerful group. I think there is no other group with the ability to generate ideas and apply intellect, all focused on growth anywhere else on the planet. Keynes is uh, recently back in fashion, so I do run the risk of a cliché here, but I'm going to quote him anyway. He says, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. I'm sure that the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared to the gradual encroachment of ideas. It is ideas, not vested interests, which are dangerous for good or evil. So the power of this group is in generating ideas and applying intellect, and this is an essential part of Growth Week. But that alone would not be enough. Growth Week is also about the application of ideas. In other words, power but with a purpose. Put it yet another way, to ensure that practical men in authority are well informed by absolutely first-rate research. Which brings me to the second reason why it is a privilege to welcome you all here, which is that this is the first big event for the International Growth Centre. And it is the connection of powerful ideas with the purpose of better-founded decisions on policy and on reform, which is at the heart of the IGC. As you know, the IGC has been initiated and funded by the UK's Department for International Development. I believe it's an initiative of great vision, and I want to take this opportunity to put on the record the thanks of everyone associated with the IGC to DFID for making the IGC possible. As many of you will already be aware, the IGC is well underway, based both here at the LSE and at Oxford, and with a growing set of country programmes and ten research programmes. We will continue to be responsive to decision-makers in developing countries and tailor our work to the challenges they face. Of course, the connection of ideas with policy is not easy. 
but it's a challenge that we are determined to meet. So it's therefore also a privilege to be here, near the beginning of something unique and something very exciting. So once again, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. For those of you who will enjoy the rest of Growth Week, thank you in advance for your contributions. And I hope you share the, the sense that this promises to be a very exhilarating few days. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I hope you do feel welcome by now. Uh, nonetheless, I'd like to add my and Diffid's uh, welcome. Uh, welcome both to this impressive audience and also to Growth Week, as Mark says, the first of the really big public occasions which the International Growth Centre has put on. Uh, our recent white paper, uh, Building Our Common Future, Diffid reaffirmed its commitment to growth in developing countries. Economic growth is still just about the best thing we know for reducing poverty, and that is what we are intent on doing. We know a good deal about the generic features that generate growth, but every developing country has its own particular set of circumstances and priorities, and it's become clear over the last 10 years or so that no single recipe is going to produce growth everywhere. It's to develop, help developing countries identify their own growth paths that DFID came up with the idea and has put over £30 million into the idea of creating the International Growth Centre. Setting up a centre that will give developing country policymakers access to some of the world's leading experts on economic growth. We've been very pleased to see how the LSE and Oxford have transformed the IGC from an idea into a reality, since it was launched by the Secretary of State in this room, in fact, in December. We think of the International Growth Centre as an innovative mixture of demand-driven country engagement and policy support based on cutting-edge research. The IGC aims to be highly responsive to the needs and aspirations of developing country governments, to provide advice that's tailored to the particular challenges that each of them faces. We believe that the IGC will be uniquely powerful for developing countries to use in identifying their own distinctive growth paths. At the same time, the IGC will call upon the finest minds in development. It is creating and will manage an excellent and innovative research program. It will bring the fruits of that analysis to other researchers and policymakers around the world through a website and through networking. It will become, we hope, the go-to resource centre in the world for understanding growth and getting growth advice. But perhaps the most important thing and the most innovative thing is it will give governments of its principal client countries access to leading researchers to answer their questions and a hotline to the advice of genuinely world-class experts. Merely bringing the minds of fine economists and social scientists to bear on the challenges of specific poor countries will be a unique contribution of this institution, and one which cannot, at least I believe, fail to yield fruit. The contribution that IGC can make specifically, and to growth understanding and debate in general, is clearly on display in Growth Week. 
The programme is absolutely packed full. It's very exciting. And it's given DFID immense pleasure, and me as Chief Economist particular pleasure, to see these plans coming together in such an effective way. So thank you, and thank you to all. Well, in that uh, spirit of uh, innovation that uh, Alan has just spoken of, uh, we're going to pioneer a, uh, a new version of PowerPoint. It's called PowerPoint I, PowerPoint Interactive. And that is, as I speak, you envisage the points I'm making on this screen. <laughs> okay, let's go. Um, I've... Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Sierra Leone for the IGC, and a, and a week ago in Zambia. Both of these countries uh, are resource-rich countries. Um, Sierra Leone, um, when I arrived, the puzzle was, how could a country that's had so much money from diamonds over the past 30 years be so poor? And by the time I left, they discovered oil. So, as I said to them, this is your opportunity, diamonds plus oil, to become Angola. Um, uh, but, but it's a more general thing. That the, um, over the, over the, the, the three years of the commodity booms, the, the countries of the bottom billion had extracted from them a trillion dollars in oil alone. So the sheer scale of resources, uh, of money associated with the natural resources of the poorest countries is just vast. Um, the challenge, of course, is to harness that money for, uh, for development, for rapid and sustained development. Um, now, usually in economics, at least over the last 30 years, we've had a kind of bias to say, well, as long as you just leave it to the private sector, it'll happen. And in the case of natural resources, that answer would be fundamentally wrong. Development associated with natural resources, government has to be central. And the reason is that unlike other activities, harnessing natural resources for development is all about generating and capturing rents for society. And if government doesn't get that right, either the rents won't be generated or they won't be captured for society. So government is fundamental to anything to do with natural resources. As even the most casual empiricism will tell you, um, the outcomes from natural resources are enormously varied. Right? That you've got some of the most successful and some of the most unsuccessful countries in the world, using, often using the same resources. Diamonds produce, Sierra Leone produce Botswana. So what that tells you is choices really matter. Choices by governments. So there are, unfortunately, a lot of choices that matter if you're going to harness natural resources for successful development. And what I want to do tonight is go through 
the chain of decisions uh, that are key to that successful harnessing. And I'm going to boil it down into four steps, four blocks of decisions. And, uh, and the first step uh, is find your natural resources. Right? Here, um, I'm going to give you the one statistic that I guarantee in a year's time you'll remember from this evening, right? because it's so amazing. Um, and it's a comparison of uh, the OECD and Africa. Right? And because this is interactive, you're going to vote on it. Right? So the, we've got to take the average square kilometer of the OECD. Underneath the average square kilometer of the OECD are natural assets, subsoil assets, worth around $123,000. That's the typical square kilometer of the OECD. And now they're going to turn to Africa. Now, Africa, the same exercise, the average square kilometer in Africa. Could be less, could be more. Who thinks that Africa has less natural resources than the OECD per square kilometer? And who thinks more? And you know what? I've set you up. You're all absolutely wrong. <laughs> the average square kilometer of Africa is not $123,000. It's about $20,000. Right? Actually, to be precise, 23. Now, why? What, what on earth is going on? Right? These are both huge chunks of the earth, right? huge chunks of the earth. I mean, OECD is a sort of semi-random, uh, which adds up to about a quarter of the earth's surface, um, and Africa's almost the same. So these are huge chunks out of the earth's surface. And we think of Africa as resource-rich, and yet it's got only a fifth of the natural assets per square kilometer. One explanation is that God has been really mean to Africa. Right? There just isn't much there. Statistically, that's most unlikely to happen, that difference in the averages. Right? So it's either God or it's something else. Now, hang on. The, the figures I've given you are of known subsoil assets. If you think about it, how could they be anything else? I can't give you figures of unknown subsoil assets because they're unknown. Right? So why else might known subsoil assets in Africa be so much lower than in the OECD? After all, the OECD has been digging this stuff out for 200 years, so probably there's less down there. Right? The obvious explanation is that there's a lot more to be discovered in Africa. Right? Now, that tells you two things. One is your instinct that Africa is resource-rich is in one sense right. If we look at Africa's natural assets relative to its invested assets, Africa is the, is the resource-rich continent. That's because it's so staggeringly poor in invested assets. 
So one thing to tell, one lesson is multiply by five what we know is there. What we know is there is already massively important. Multiply it by five, and this is the big lifeline for Africa. It would dwarf, completely dwarf aid. Incidentally, think of the huge literature on aid effectiveness compared to the literature on harnessing natural resources for growth, and you see the mismatch. You see why the IGC is needed. But the second thing that this massive difference in numbers tells us is that the discovery process has gone drastically wrong in Africa. Because, of course, if so much less is known relative to what is there, it's the discovery process that's to blame. So let me say a few words on the, the economics of the discovery process of natural assets. It's really quite a complicated set of issues, which is why it can go so drastically wrong. Um, one feature is that the discovery process is replete in externalities. Why? Because it's, discovery is about information, and we know information is all about externalities. Right? Um, we see this for very long periods of time a large area will be totally neglected in prospecting. And then, if you just leave it to the private sector, there'll be no prospecting, and then somebody finds something, and you know what happens after that? It's a gold rush. Now, both the, both the long period of neglect and the gold rush are hugely inefficient. Right? The gold rush is just other people piggybacking, benefiting from the externality of the knowledge of that first discovery. So externalities are one problem. Second feature is the scale uh, of operation. There, there are powerful scale economies in mining. And if you miss them, um, what happens, if the public sector misses them, if the government misses them, what happens is they're captured by the private sector. Let me give you the example of gold mining in South Africa. Gold mining in South Africa was initiated by the government selling tiny little plots for people to search on. So the discovery process was little plots, and each plot you'd dig down and see if you found gold. Right? That was not harnessing any of the scale economies in discovery process. If you see photographs of the thing, you find these ridiculous deep mine shafts all next to each other. Right? And along came um, De Beers, um, it was actually Rhodes, and uh, worked out that there were these huge scale economies. And so he started buying up mines. And within quite a short period, um, we switched from a competitive industry, unable to reap scale economies, to a private monopoly, which was, which was the De Beers company. Now, that was very efficient, but it meant that all the rents from resource extraction were basically captured privately by that company rather than publicly. The government at the time had sold the rights in two smaller plots, which failed to harness scale economies, and so the price paid for the plots was too small. Third um, set of issues is, um, is agency problems. 
um, which I guess is a euphemism for corruption. You, you, you're doing a deal between a resource extraction company looking for, looking for diamonds or whatever and uh, the representative of society, namely some government official or minister, and uh, it's, uh, it's much easier for the company to discipline its agents than it is for the society to discipline its agents. And, of course, the, the last 30 or 40 years in Africa has been replete with, with instances in which um, companies have bribed their way into, uh, into deals. Um, the uh, related but distinct is the asymmetric information problem. Companies specialized in resource extraction know better what uh, uh, entitlements to search are worth than the government which is selling them. And that asymmetric information problem uh, can, can produce dramatically disadvantageous deals for governments. Um, was my favorite example of... Uh, of a disadvantageous deal that was just avoided um, was the, the British sale of the third-generation mobile phone network, which was almost sold in a private deal for, for $2 billion before being put out to auction, where it fetched $20 billion. So I tell my friends in African governments, if the British Treasury uh, can be out by a factor of 10, um, what, what do you imagine your Ministry of Finance will be like? Um, and, the, and the final problem is, uh, is the time consistency problem. Uh, if you have very little information about uh, the prospects of finding anything, then um, let's parody it, but suppose there's a, a 90% chance that you find nothing and a 10% chance that you find something worth a billion dollars. So the mathematical expectation of this is that it's worth $100 million dollars. Why would the government not get $100 million or anything like it for that right? Because the company knows that if it finds nothing, okay, it's spent money, it's made a loss. That's business. But suppose it strikes lucky. Then it, what's happened? It's paid only $100 million, even if it pays the mathematical expectation, for something that is now worth a billion. What's the chances of that deal surviving. The government is really not able to commit itself to saying, yeah, that's yours, well done. If the government tries to say that, some other government will come in which says something different. So those are a range of problems. What are some solutions that economists have come up with? One is get good geological information which is in the public domain before you sell the extraction rights. By getting good geological information, you reduce that time consistency problem that I've just sketched. If the chances of finding uh, your, your billion are 50-50 instead of 1 in 10, then um, you're going to pay $500 million for something that's a billion and then the deal is less likely to be ripped up. So the better the quality of geological information, the less severe is the time consistency problem. Uh, to date, Africa's not done that. Um, when I was in Zambia last week, uh, the government's mining 
officials were telling me that the, the, the public geological information on, they were, on which they were working is still dating from the 1950s, so 50 years out of date. Um, a, uh, a second technique that economists have done a lot of work on is the virtues of auctions. Auctions as a way of overcoming the asymmetric information problem. If you do auctions, you don't, it doesn't matter that the government knows less because the true value is revealed by competition amongst agents with good information, namely different companies. Um, final thing that economists have uh, learned is that you should roll the auctions. You shouldn't auction everything at once because of this property that it's like the gold rush point, that as you get information about what's underneath one plot, that enhances the value of neighboring plots. And you want to try and capture that information for the public good. And the way to do that is to hold back many, most of the plots and gradually roll out the discovery process rather than sell everything at once. So genuinely difficult um, issues connected with the discovery process. Economists have worked out some solutions and those solutions have not to date been applied. That's an example of why we need the IGC in the discovery process. And remember, does this matter? Multiply by five Africa's known natural assets before you get to likely what is there. So the payoff can be huge. That's the first link, the first decision step. Discover your assets. The second step is tax your assets because they're yours, they're societies. Right? But the extraction process is likely going to be private. And so what that creates is a problem of taxation. Last week I was in Zambia, um, which has just lived through the biggest copper boom it's ever had. Um, that copper boom contributed, um, at our estimate, 0.6% uh, of GDP to government revenue. The reason it contributed so little was that the tax system in Zambia was fundamentally misdesigned. It basically failed to capture virtually any of the copper boom for the government. So, again, here we're talking huge sums of money. Um, how could the tax system be improved... I'll just give you a couple of principles. Um, one is I mean, that the fundamental mistake that the Zambians made was that there were no contingencies built into uh, the tax schedules. The tax schedules were designed at a time when the world copper price was very low and nobody thought to, to write in, if the copper price rises, tax rates will change. Now, that failure to build in contingencies not only has the, the property I've just described, but it feeds into a, another time consistency problem, which is that if you start with offering low tax rates or almost any tax rates and conditions change a lot, those tax rates will be torn up because it will be in the government's interest to change the tax regime. That's what the government of Zambia in the end did. 
It had promised one set of tax regime. It then had subsequently to tear that up very, very high cost politically um, and try and put in a new regime. So by building in contingencies, you can reduce the time consistency problem. So that's one fairly simple feature. And if you think about it, um, when, the, uh, when the copper price doubles, the rents on copper more than double. The costs of extraction stay the same. The revenues are doubled, so the rents are more than doubled. So you need a tax regime which is very highly geared on the copper price. Now, how can you gear it? What do you tax? The, uh, the Zambian copper regime at the moment taxes profits. It has what's called an excess profits tax. Uh, this was agreed in negotiations with companies. And I'm not surprised that companies agreed to an excess profits tax. Um, the Chileans, who are kind of considered the kind of the world experts on a lot of development economics issues, they too had an excess profits tax, which they abandoned uh, around four years ago, because in all the time they got their excess profits tax, they never got a cent from it. Um, the companies were expanding like mad, but somehow never seemed to make any taxable profits. Right? Um, and such is going to be the case in Zambia, because the, uh, the private companies that now own the copper mines bought ZCCM, the old uh, nationalized industry, and in buying it, they bought the accumulated losses. So the uh, Zambian copper companies can make profits till kingdom come and never pay any excess profits tax. Um, how else could we run things? Well, uh, one simple approach is to tax uh, using a royalty system. A royalty system is not first best if you follow textbook 101 tax system. But the reason for that is that textbook 101 tax system assumes there is no asymmetric information between the firm and the government. But actually, there's a lot of asymmetric information. As a, a Zambian tax official from the, the uh, Revenue Authority put it to me last week, the copper companies hire much better accountants than we can afford. <coughs> and so the problem with that is that if you tax something which is very unobservable, like true profits, what you end up taxing is reported profits, as, as depicted by the company. And the company has an incentive to say, oh, sorry, this year we didn't make any. Right? The advantage of a royalty is that you're taxing something which is much easier to observe. It's much harder for the company to gain. So here's, an, again, in this second stage of capturing the revenues, here's an example of where present practice is massively out of line with what good economics would suggest is sensible. Does it matter? Enormously. Right? A dirt poor country completely missed out on its biggest copper boom in its history. Let's turn to the, um, the third step in the chain. So We've listened, the government has listened to the IGC. It's got the discovery process right. It's taxed 
those discoveries so it's captured the revenues, what else might go wrong? Step three is the decision how to use those revenues for saving or consuming. And the, uh, the key insight here is that revenues from natural asset extraction are special. They're not like other government revenues. Key respect in which they're different is they're not sustainable. Their natural assets are depleting, they're going to run out. Um, that poses an ethical issue of responsibilities towards the future. Now, at the moment, there are two different ways in which you can address that ethical problem, both of them sensible, I think. I have my preference. The economics profession uses um, the, the utilitarian calculus, which is the sort of thing you've, you've seen in, in climate change, where you're basically discounting uh, an infinite stream of, of future utility. Um, and the... The key insight there was, was, was generated by my, my colleague, Tony Venables, um, that if you use that calculus, um, you don't come out with a 100% savings rate because in low-income countries, future people are richer, and if future people are richer, um, then their marginal utility is lower. And so what you come out with is a high savings rate is optimal, let's say 80%, but not... 100% savings rate. Um, the, the IMF was using a model where it recommended, it, it, was the, it was the permanent income model, but ignoring the fact that poor countries would ever, would ever become richer. And so the, the IMF model was recommending a savings rate of 100%. So we can show that technically, within the, within the, the system used by the IMF, which is again this discounting of future utilities, the IMF result was wrong. The IMF is admitting that. Uh, in fact, it's publishing the results in its own uh, professional journal, staff papers. Um, there's another ethical framework, which is a rights-based framework, um, which I tend to prefer now, rather than the utilitarian framework. I think natural assets are special because they have no natural owners. Um, in effect, they belong to everybody, and not just everybody in the present, but everybody in the future as well. And so we have a responsibility to compensate the future for the assets that we use. In other words, we have a right to use assets, but if we use them, we should leave equivalent value for future generations. On either of those ethical frameworks, past practice has had savings rates which are wildly too low. Not 100%, not 80%, but more like 20%. And so on, on both of those ethical frameworks, what's been happening is that the future has been, plundering, has been plundered by the present. Um, how to correct that? The first step is know what revenues from natural assets actually are. And that has two components. One is transparency of information. And some of you will know of the, the Publish What You Pay campaign, which was a, an NGO campaign to try and get out into, the, so, into public domain so that citizens would know what revenues from natural resources were. But there's an economic point 
uh, as well as a, a sort of simple governance point, and that is that the, the revenues from natural resources are often not what they seem. This point struck me most clearly when I was advising the, the reforming government in Nigeria four or five years ago. And uh, the, the finance minister said to me, we can't afford to uh, liberalize trade. She knew that there were powerful reasons why Nigeria should liberalize trade. She said, we can't afford it. We'll just lose too much revenue. And I went back and started to think about it. And I went back to economic principles. And I realized that a lot of those revenues that appeared to be from uh, tariff revenues were actually an indirect way of taxing natural resources. And so Tony Venables and I have just done the, the sort of hard technical economics work of, of proving that point. We've got a paper called Illusory Revenues, which shows that actually in, in countries like Nigeria, all the revenues that in a budget line ahead of tariff revenues are actually just another way of taxing natural resources. And you can't tax natural resources twice. In Nigeria, the government owns the oil. And so all that's happening is a transfer between budget heads rather than an increase in tax revenue. And so what appears to be a sustainable source of revenue, tariff revenue, is actually just as unsustainable as the oil revenues. They are oil revenues. It's just they're not labeled oil revenues. So first, know what your revenues are, and then have a high savings rate. The, the best work I know on working out what the actual savings rate has been is by um, very distinguished economist Partha Dasgupta and a team around Ken Arrow. And they've come up with a concept called comprehensive wealth, where they value for each country in the world not just natural wealth, but invested wealth and uh, a range of different forms of wealth come up with this concept of comprehensive wealth. And then they build time series over a 30-year period, country by country, continent by continent. And for Africa, comprehensive wealth per capita over the last 30 years has halved. And that's a disastrous figure. It tells us that natural assets have been run down, but not been replaced by other assets to a sufficient extent. And so the legacy for the future is this radically depleted stock of assets per head. So the third link in this chain is save, not consume. Um, there's an additional reason, which is that... Um, not only are resources depleting, but sometimes prices uh, are unsustainable. And that's, we've just been through such a period, a commodity boom. Um, and yet, as far as we can see, savings rates during that commodity boom have usually not been very high. Let me get to the final link in the chain, which is what do you do with the savings? And here, there is one model that prudent finance ministers are supposed to look at and do look at, and it's Norway. And what Norway does with its uh, revenues from oil is um, save them. 
uh, in financial assets, a sort of sovereign wealth fund. Um, Norway has received 50 uh, requests from developing countries uh, to learn uh, how to do that, 50. So the demand on the part of resource-rich developing countries for knowledge is enormous. Now, the tragedy is that um, Norway's the wrong model for developing countries. It's a sensible strategy for Norway. There's one fundamental difference between Norway and Sierra Leone. I looked at the figures on this, and I can say Norway is, has the, the most invested capital per worker in the world. The most in the whole world. And so indeed, if all these Norwegian oil revenues were invested in adding yet more capital per worker in Norway, that extra capital wouldn't be very productive compared with spreading it around the world and getting the return on it. And so it makes sense for Norway to invest abroad. Sierra Leone has probably the least invested capital per worker in the world. And so for Norway, it is simply, for, for, for Sierra Leone, it is simply crazy for it to build financial assets abroad. It needs to invest domestically. But it needs to invest productively domestically. And historically, that is a big but. That is why the IMF has been recommending save abroad, because it recognizes the enormous impediments to investing productively at home. But the right answer is not save abroad. The right answer is face and resolve those obstacles to investing domestically. Until Sierra Leone and Zambia succeed in investing productively at home, they will stay poor, no matter what their savings strategy. They will never become rentier economies like Kuwait, able to live on the the return on their financial assets. They'll never be big enough. So let me close with the three steps that have to be taken to transform what is currently a dismal investment environment to an environment in which you can have a high rate of investment and yet that investment be productive. The first step is a public sector strategy. In a way, that's the easiest. It's that the public sector has to scale up so that it can learn how to invest productively. I call this whole strategy investing in investing. It's doing the things which enable you to have a high rate of investment and yet be productive. So step one in investing in investing is a public sector agenda. Select good projects, implement them well. So there's a selection stage and an implementation stage. That is not rocket science. Step two is encourage private investment because private investment has to be complementary to public investment. If you do public investment but have no private investment, the returns are pathetic. Public and private investment are complement, such as roads and trucks. If you build the roads but there are no trucks, you've not got a, a transport system. Right? So you need roads, but you need an investment climate in which the private sector is able to invest in trucks. 
Again, that step is not rocket science. The, uh, the third step um, is rocket science, and it's that the unit costs of capital are very high in Africa relative to world levels. That's true of both types of capital, structures and equipment. Unit cost of construction are ridiculously high compared to world levels. Unit costs of imported equipment are also way above world levels. The high costs of construction and the high costs of uh, equipment are for different reasons. The equipment problem is basically a problem of cartels in very small markets. The construction problem is more subtle. To understand it, you need to think through the whole chain of what does it take to be able to build a structure, the whole cost chain. I was delighted that in the very first round of approvals of research for the International Growth Center, we got a proposal from some top-class American researchers to look at international comparisons of the unit costs of capital goods and why were they so much higher in some places than others. So that's where economics research is going to be able to give fundamental insights into that fourth link in the chain, investing and investing. Now, I've spoken of a chain with these four links in it, and the use of that language is not idle, because unfortunately... The problem of harnessing natural assets for development is a weakest link problem. If any one of those links fails, the process of harnessing natural resources for development fails. And so all four steps have got to be got right. As you'll see if you think about them, they span a very wide range of decisions. It's not about... It's, it's, it's not a range that can all be done in the Ministry of Finance, for example. It's across government ministries. What's more, it's not the decision of a moment. The process of transforming a society from poverty to middle income through natural resources, as with any growth process, takes time. Typically, the fastest you'll be able to do it is a generation. And so the whole decision chain has to be got right again and again and again for a generation. If it's got right, the power of natural resources to haul a country out of poverty is much, much greater than anything else we know for the resource-rich countries. How, does, how can it be done? Let me close by saying the, um, the enemies, as it were, uh, a plunder and plunder can take two forms if you've listened to what I've been saying you might piece them together one form of plunder is where the natural assets that properly belong to the many are captured by the few the other form of plunder is where natural resources which natural assets which properly belong to the future are captured by the present and assets are not bequeathed. And so both forms of plunder have to be guarded against. What are the defenses against plunder? One is informed governments. 
There is no substitute in this process for informed governments. And that's where the International Growth Center uh, is such a potent force. When I uh, was in Sierra Leone, um, the government was so concerned about that the future should not look like the past that they asked me to give a lecture on the management of natural resources. I gave them the lecture I've given you. Who was them? It was the president, the vice president, the entire cabinet, and the top 60 officials in the country. They assembled that because they thought, my God, we need to know this. When I'd finished that lecture, I had a one-on-one meeting with the president of Sierra Leone who said, how can we get the International Growth Center set up as fast as possible? And I mean fast. Come back next month and do it. So, informed governments there is no substitute for. But that is not enough. An informed government will last for the length of one government, but that's not likely to be a generation. Uh, Decisions have to be got right across the whole chain of decisions again and again and again. And so, in the end, the management of natural resources has to be grounded in an informed society. And so it's not enough to build informed governments. We have to build a critical mass of informed citizens. I'll close with with a note that as a private citizen, I've been trying to do that actually in association with DFID, and we've created something called the Natural Resource Charter under the auspices of Ernesto Zadio, Charles Saludo from Nigeria, and uh, former finance minister Gaidar from Russia. Um, And the Resource Charter is a website, you can all see it, naturalresourcecharter.org, which just sets out everything I've said today in an accessible form. And the hope is that through that website, through a lot of advocacy, gradually we can build informed societies. Thanks very much. Good evening. This is probably the, the fourth time in the last 10 years that I've been asked to comment on something that Paul has said. And uh, on the first two occasions, I ended up agreeing with everything that he said. The third time, it occurred to me that my image was not being done any good by simply agreeing with Paul. So that third time, I disagree with quite a few things that he said. Today, uh, luckily for this fourth occasion, I have the privilege of not having to comment on what he said. So I don't have to agree or disagree with him. Uh, Likely because I'll be talking mainly about Ghana, which he didn't say much about. But uh, I very much agree with the uh, (laughs) basic premise that he's laid out. So there's not going to be much room for disagreement here. Indeed, uh, Paul's uh, main argument, uh, the first point he made, was whether uh, the possession of natural assets uh, should lead to a curse. And uh, he's given us very good reasons why 
uh, there's evidence from very good econometric work that uh, in the short run, uh, everything may be quite rosy, but uh, in the longer run, there are signs of a curse. There is indeed a lot of material on this issue all over the place, and uh, you will find that uh, likely depending on how countries are governed, uh, the availability of natural resources may or may not turn out to be what we generally come to know as a curse. So I agree with Paul that uh, governance matters. Indeed, it matters a lot. And uh, one thing that we know from developing countries and also for the literature is that uh, weak governance has basically been the, uh, um, the main challenge to our faster growth and development. <clears throat> I like a point that uh, Paul made in relation to democracy. Um, in the last few years, we've come to believe that uh, democratic uh, nations are much more likely to grow faster than others. There may be some truth in that, but it also depends on what institutions there are in the country for managing that process. And I'll give you examples later of how uh, very democratic uh, systems have not yielded the kinds of growth and developed outcomes that we've been looking for. There's a point that Paul has made over the years, which I also tend to share. At the end, for Africa, it's not simply a matter of governments always making their wrong choices. They often do. But very often, these choices have been dictated by the structure of their economies and by the societies that they live in. So where you have very, very rigid structures, it's very difficult in terms of the community boom to utilize the windfall gains uh, in any uh, superior manner. That's a point that Paul makes, which I also agree with. And uh, for me, uh, the issue of structure in an economy, uh, not changing, is one of the most important things we need to understand. We can't really do much about sustained growth over the long term without paying attention to the structures of our economies and the structures of the society that we come from. That's a point that uh, resonates quite well with me. So that takes me to the point, why has there been no structural change in Africa over the past uh, five decades? If you look clearly at the growth uh, history of Africa, there are good examples, uh, Uganda, Ghana, Tanzania, where you've had long episodes of uh, growth. But these have almost always broken down after a certain number of years, and we attribute this to the absence of structural change in those economies. So for us, the biggest thing that has to be dealt with is the structural issue. Why has that changed? In the first decade of independence for many of the African economies, they tried to deal with that issue by the state taking over the markets. The state trying many of these economies to do what the markets could have done or should have been doing trying to move resources from surplus areas into uh, areas of deficit, trying to influence how the economy should be structured. They didn't work out, largely because they didn't have the right institutions that would facilitate that process of uh, moving resources from place to place. In the 80s and 90s, we tended to assume that the state's role had to give way to the market. We've seen how, in many of these economies, despite fairly decent growth. That change never took place. So with time, we've come to lose confidence in the ability of the market to deliver that. 
Today, we all talk about structural change and the need for it, and yet we are not sure of exactly the means to bring about such change. I'm very happy that Paul talks about it in his uh, work, and I'd like to explore in the uh, coming uh, months how this can be done. In moving on, and this is something that Paul talks about, is governance in Africa changing? If, as a result of what we've been talking about, uh, assets can lead to negative outcomes, likely because of the weak governance, is there any evidence that things are changing in Africa? I talk about this likely because over the past decade, it's my view that people have not paid enough attention to the issue of change in the governance arrangements in Africa. Change that I believe was partly behind some of the uh, fairly decent performance of economy before the uh, recent crisis. So what we see as change in the area of uh, managing natural resources. One thing that I've seen is that the role played by civil society has improved in many of these economies. So in a place like Angola, for example, where we've seen some improvements in the management of these resources, there is a growing role of a civil society, which is acknowledged. In places like uh, Tanzania, I see an improving role played by civil society in the management of natural resources. In my own country, Ghana, I see a major, major shift in the role that civil society has played in the management of the economy and by default of resources, natural resources. So today, in the debates about how uh, the new oil fine in Ghana should be managed, that role played by civil society has become very, very important. And so I move on to discuss what this means for Ghana. Ghana, uh, as many of us know, has for a long time been dependent on uh, cocoa and other agricultural uh, items, and also gold and some other minerals. In the last three years, its interest in oil has grown remarkably, largely because of a major oil find. But if you compare that oil find to what uh, uh, obtains in other African countries, you will believe that, or you come to the conclusion, it's not much, really. It's not much. It's not, nothing compared to what you see in Nigeria, nothing compared to what we've seen in Angola. And yet, it's become a very big thing. Ghana expects to begin drilling 120,000 barrels a day beginning next year, middle of next year. 120,000 barrels a day. That is, compared to Nigeria doing about 2 million, nothing. So why should there be so much fuss uh, about this? Appraisals suggest that uh, if all goes well, if all goes well, Ghana could easily do about 800 million barrels and uh, possibly doing three, 3 billion barrels. This is the, the, the optimistic side. How far does Ghana expect to get from this? And here, I like the points that Paul made. Ghana, like many other African economies, beginning to discover oil, have tried, has tried to find out what we call the best practices in other places have been. So Ghana knows very, quite, quite well that you've got to manage royalties properly. You've got to find the best ways of getting the most out of this. Looking at that, Ghana has decided, this is information from the Petroleum Corporation, that to peg royalties at about 5%, 5% of 
we live in a world where it runs anywhere between uh, 3% and 10%. But Ghana believes it can do 5% on royalties. Ghana also believes that uh, in terms of high interest, it can do about 10%. This is the state share in the oil produced without making any contribution to the development of the uh, oil resort, uh, material. So Ghana believes it can do 10% there. And then additional interest will bring in about 3.75%. But if the state is willing to invest in exploration and development, it could do another 3.75%. And then tax on petroleum is fixed at 35%. That's what the Ghana government seeks to do. Now, if we took a price of $60 barrels uh, per, $60 per barrel, what this allows us, taking into account all these different taxes and levies and so on and royalty, Ghana expects to make about $840 million annually over 15 years. That's not compared to Nigeria, compared to Angola, any large thing uh, to think about. But what is interesting about this is about uh, if you compare it to revenue, to domestic revenue for last year, and also GDP, uh, this is about 7% of 2008 GDP and about 25% of total uh, domestic revenues. So that's quite large. I mean, for a country like Ghana, quite large by all accounts. It's also larger than the uh, $560 million of total grants disbursed last year. So $840 million per annum compared to $560 million of grants last year. So for the Ghana government, that's a huge thing, a major departure from what has been the trend over the uh, past years. The IMF estimates that Ghana could easily make about 4 to 5% of GDP annually. So what the Ghana government doing to realize this? What is it doing to ensure that uh, it does not get uh, cheated out of what it sees as its uh, uh, right? As Paul said, it has approached the Norwegians. It wants to learn from the Norwegian experience. So it is going to set up an oil fund like the Norwegians have done. And I agree with Paul entirely that uh, saving it is not going to be the solution to the problem because you have a huge you have a huge deficit when it comes to investments. So a country like Ghana needs to think much more deeply about what it's going to do with the oil revenues. It's looking at the oil fund idea from Norway, not because it has found it good to do that, but largely because in the current environment, everybody says that's the thing to do. So, so everybody says, learn from Norway, learn from Norway. So Paul is the only one saying, don't learn from Norway. <laughs> No. And I tend to agree entirely with Paul, but uh, there is the need for economists like Ghana to determine what to be the appropriate level of savings to make and or the optimal level of uh, investment to make based on the known deficits within the system. Ghana's economy needs lots and lots of investment in energy, needs lots of investment in agriculture for irrigation, for example, for storage need lots of investment in education and in health. So how does Ghana then offload this revenue outside and then borrows to finance uh, these investments? That's a challenge that the Ghana government has to think about. Ghana has been accepted as an EITI candidate country. Uh, so basically it's, it believes in the need to be much more transparent in the use of the oil revenues. So it has offered itself uh, for assessment. It's put together a, a committee that is looking at various strategies for implementing 
the uh, arrangements for uh, becoming more transparent. So Ghana is, by now, learning from what the whole world is saying is the right thing to do. But Ghana is also fully aware of the fact that uh, the pressures that are coming from the ordinary people are increasing. Everybody expects that with the, with the new oil find, it should be possible to deal with the education problems. It should be possible to deal with the road problems. It should be possible to deal with the health problems. So there is new pressure mounting on politicians. How do they deal with that? They deal with that by promising more. At the last elections in Ghana was end of last year. Many of you would have noticed that the results were very, very close. That was largely because for both of the major parties, the two parties, it was a very, very important thing. Seeing that there's going to be a lot more revenue available than before, it was very important to them that they be in charge. And that's why the competition was much keener than before. The oil has changed the face of politics in Ghana, as indeed it has in many other African countries. And I'm quite sure in Sierra Leone it's going to change. The competition to control the resources is going to be keener. And that's how this is going to uh, evolve in many countries. The, challenge, the question for us is, can we use this new resource? Can we use this new interest in controlling the resources to bring about better democracy, uh, more uh, competition for, for state control, and uh, a much better management of the economy? As a result of the uh, politicians being much more interested in uh, the oil and whatever revenues will come out of it, the fiscal deficit in Ghana grew from 6.1% in 2007 to 14.9% in 2008. Huge expansion by any standard at all. The government, seeing that, well, uh, come 2010, there'll be new oil revenues, began borrowing like mad in 2008 in order to win the election. Everybody was borrowing. Ministers were everywhere promising things, largely because of this new expectation. So clearly, there's evidence that so long as governments know there's more revenue coming, they are going to be a lot more relaxed in the way they approach micromanagement. And there's evidence of that in Ghana, as I've shown you. Today, all the gains that we had made in the seven years before uh, 2008 disappeared as a result of this new profligacy. Today, we see how governments, as a result of uh, expecting more revenue, uh, can do damage to an economy. But how do we deal with that? So moving forward, the first point I make in this presentation is that civil society organizations have to be a lot more active than they've been. They already are doing something, but they've got to get even more involved, more involved in the debate about how remedies should be used, more involved in the way contracts are written up. I'm very happy to know, see the Ghana government talk about auctions in the way the contracts are given out these days, very much in line with what Paul and others have been preaching for years. So this new idea of using the auction system is going to work in Ghana, hopefully. Government is being encouraged to open up the discussion. It's interesting, in the last two years, the current government and then the one before it, they organized conferences to discuss how to manage the oil revenues, the new rents coming out of oil. It's very interesting thing to see government begin to do that. What is even more interesting is that in many of these discussions, it is done by the Ghana government and outsiders, 
Ghana government, experts from outside, no effort to involve the local uh, uh, academic community, largely because governments fear debate. It's not possible to debate with outsiders. It's much more difficult to debate with people in the country. So governments run away from that. So the Ghana government is keen to be seen to be debating and discussing what can be done with the revenues, but not with its own people. And that's something that needs to be avoided. We talk about the need to think about what the spatial implications will be. We've seen from the evidence from Nigeria how what part of the country, as a result of environmental degradation, can lose out on uh, new rents. This could easily happen anywhere in, the, in, in Africa. And in Ghana, we expect that to happen in the western part where this is, uh, the oil fine is. But there's no discussion about how this will be managed. You find, instead, different groups already beginning to make their own case about how they should be compensated, but very little discussion of negotiations. What all of this tells me is basically we haven't spent enough time on developing institutions, institutions that allow us to negotiate our interests, that allow us to say, give me this and I'll give you that in return. We don't do that. Our parliaments do not discuss issues of reallocation, uh, uh, redistribution, etc. No, that's not for discussion. But that's where this discussion must take place. That's why we must decentralize and allow local governments a bigger role in this dealing with issues of uh, uh, environmental degradation and how to meet the local needs of people. Poverty in Ghana currently, probably one of the, the reduction in the last uh, 10 years, probably one of the best in Africa, but still a major problem. And it's very, very likely that uh, with the new oil uh, find those who will gain are not those uh, in the need of uh, new income and new resources. So there is no plan at the moment for dealing with that. We believe that in moving forward, it's important that the Ghana government shows more interest in transparency. It should move beyond the symbolism by turning on to the EITI and be much more active in dealing with its own people. It must talk to the people, talk to different groups in finding ways forward. That's how you're going to determine how much of the new rents may be saved, how much may be invested, and how much public consumption may be tolerated. There is enough evidence that uh, macro-management has improved considerably in the, last two de- in the last decade, especially. But there's every danger that this will be lost as a result of uh, 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 high on newly high expectations. That's how we would like to look at this. In summary, expectations have been very, very high since oil was found in Ghana. And indeed, if you look at Uganda, it's probably the same thing. You know, the same debates take place in, in, in Kampala. How do we contain the high expectations? How do we also proceed to manage the new rents properly? And how do we ensure that in the end, the redistribution that has to result is that in a manner that does not affect long-term growth, in a manner that ensures that the structure of the economy will be transformed in order to ensure that growth continues. Thank you very much.
we have only uh, a few minutes remaining, so what I suggest we do is we take uh, probably three questions. Um, so people could raise their hands. I believe there's mics around the place. And then when you, when you pose your question, could you also say who you are and where you're from? So there seems to be one question here. Uh, my name is Brian Saker. Um, g given the difficulties of, of many countries in, in wisely allocating resources, as, as, the, as both speakers have mentioned, for investment, uh, I wonder how you'd respond to the idea of, of internationally reputable organizations, such as, I guess, the ISGC, being incorporated into the, the decision-making process as a kind of um, independent and neutral participant in, in that. Okay, could I, I think I'm going to collect the three together because we're, so there's another question back there and another question here. Thanks. Um, hi, uh, thank you first of all for a very interesting talk. Um, I, uh, oh, Adrian Abzalag, uh, MSc Economics here. Um, Professor Collier, just um, wondering about you wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, what what you're suggesting, um, I guess, well, it seems to have. It seems like it would have quite a big uh, impact on commodity prices um, in terms of more efficient discovery. So, increasing supply, uh, so potentially pushing prices downwards, or more effective taxation, so um, potentially pr pushing commodity prices upwards. Um, I guess, n well, not having studied development economics, but um, in the bit of reading I've done the past few years. Uh, it seems like a lot of, uh, well, there's been a lot of commodity price volatility, and a great part of that has been, well, ascribed to uh, government policies, um, probably slightly different government policies to the ones you've been talking about, um, but government policies nonetheless impacting on prices, which then increases commodity price volatility. I was just wondering, um, in the context of your talk, whether you thought that there was a risk that down the line, these countries implementing exactly what you're suggesting could contribute to commodity price volatility, which would be a kind of second round effect and could come back to hurt those very same countries which have increased um, the use of natural resources as a share of their economy, thanks to what you're suggesting. Thanks. So the final question from the gentleman over here. Hello, good evening. Um, my name is Kevin Lindsay and I'm a gap year student in London. My question is to Dr. Ariete. Um, you talked about involving civil society in the debate about how to use the, the revenue from you know, the, the exploitation of natural resources. And um, I am of Ghanaian origin and I've been to Ghana many times. And one of the things I've noticed is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, communication between normal citizens and government in terms of interaction with the, um, the people who are actually representing the citizens, um, that is, members of parliament. And so I was just wondering if you would agree with me that if we're going to have that debate, then it's important that you know um, normal citizens interact with members of parliament and are able to express their views through things such as surgeries and, and other um, ways in which normal citizens can tell members of parliament directly what their views are, or else the government just becomes a closet group. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm afraid I saw many hands. We'll have to close off the questions. So let Paul and then just uh, respond. Yeah, the. Um, take the second question first, which is the impact on commodity prices. A good question. Um, the, um, it, it, doing it better doesn't necessarily mean that you extract more. Um, for example, the, uh, the chaotic exploitation uh, of natural assets in the DRC over the last decade uh, has been a, a, very, a very crude form of plunder which has extracted resources quite possibly um, way faster um, than it would have been sensible. It's just in a... The private... Ex if we go back to this concept of plunder, um, where you've got insecure property rights, there's a very powerful incentive to over-exploit now. So when you, when you have private capture of social gains because of failures in governance the incentive is to get the stuff out of the ground quickly, and that's what we see is happening again and again. So one of the things that a government has to take a view on is a sensible rate of depletion. Um, so it's perfectly sensible for an individual government and indeed for a group of governments, such as OPEC, to say we want to control the pace of exploitation. The language that's often used about OPEC it's a cartel, is actually very misplaced. It is a responsibility of resource-rich governments to control the rate of depletion in the interests of their society. With, res with natural resources, we're basically talking about who captures the rents, and they should be captured by the society of the country that is uh, extracting the resources. Um, so uh, it's, it's a... Whereas... Cartels in manufacturing are about generating rents. Cartels in resource extraction are about assigning rents rather than generating them, so uh, assigning them between the present and the future. Um, you also raised issues about volatility. Um, again, really good issues. The, um, I think countries are going to have to learn to live with volatility. There's no way that... Uh, commodity prices are going to be other than volatile. Um, and the question then becomes, how do you manage volatility? What a lot of countries need is not a sovereign wealth fund, which is the Norwegian model, but what I would call a sovereign liquidity fund, which buffers the rate of investment so that the rate of investment doesn't become too volatile. Basically, consumption should be completely smoothed. Investment should be somewhat smoothed using uh, a buffer of, uh, of, of liquidity. Um, uh, in the interests of time, I'm going to stop there, but I can end with an advert um, for uh, Watch Out in April. There'll be a book called The Plundered Planet uh, by me. Um, and, uh, and now let, let, let me just say a few words on the first question, which I think was to both of us, which is that how... What role has the International Growth Centre in, in the decision process? Um, it's true that one of the things that really attracted Robin, myself, all the players in the IGC is that we are independent and neutral. Um, and that is a, a huge strength in our calling card. We are not the IMF, the World Bank. We're not a particular 
government with, a, with an interest uh, or an axe to grind. Um, nevertheless, we should say our role is modest. Right? The key struggles are internal in all these societies. Our role is to help the, the good guys by providing uh, accurate and neutral information which strengthens their position. That's the best we can do. Let me pass to others. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I agree with the idea that uh, there's not, or there's a need to do something about communication between uh, Parliament and, and the people. Uh, one thing I can see difficulties or the challenges facing ordinary people. Uh, so through these stations, uh, parliamentarians and the government are able to tell what things are on the minds of people. There isn't a structure, a proper institutional arrangement for uh, channeling these ideas into proper debates uh, or proper discussions. And I agree with you that somebody has to work on that. One of the things we've done as a university is try to work with parliament uh, in what they call the parliamentary center in terms of uh, uh, using research uh, to influence debates on the floor of parliament. That has not in the past been very well uh, done. Uh, but there's clear need for that kind of thing to happen. And uh, it's my view and my expectation that in the coming months, that is probably going to be the most appropriate way of structuring uh, communication between the people uh, and parliament and also with the government. The, the role of uh, NGOs, for example, is something that has to be mentioned. Uh, there are what we call the governance NGOs that have been quite active in uh, uh, many things. There are NGOs in Ghana that are interested in how the budget is prepared and how government spending is done. Uh, there are NGOs that watch the way HIPIC funds have been used, for example. And all of these, in my view, uh, have some role to play uh, in the emergence of uh, a new civil society arrangement uh, in terms of what spending uh, should be encouraged or not encouraged. Thank you. Well, uh, the reward for running slightly over time is that there is drinks and uh, s snacks uh, outside, but I'd like to just end by thanking both Paul and Ernest for a, a, a great kickoff. <laughs>